so much of it has to do with this idea of deeply caring about something. You know, you can be a coffee nerd or you can be a watch nerd or you can be a fashion nerd, you know, and being a snob for me always has to do with, you know, just really deeply caring or caring significantly more about something than others. Hello and welcome to this episode of Partners in Time. My name is Chris Granger. I'm the CEO of IWC Schaffhausen and your host on this podcast. During my time at IWC, I've been lucky to meet so many different people who connect with the brand. From clients and collectors, to engineers, to content creators, actors, racing drivers, pilots, and so on. And I've noticed many of these people share something. They share that unique focus and a unique passion for what they do. Now on this podcast, every week we're going to meet one of those partners in time. We're going to discuss what drives them, their passion, how they connect to time, and hopefully they'll be sharing some of their successes and secrets to success with our listeners. Now, time is precious, so let's jump right in and get started. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Partners in Time. This has been quite a unique period of uh, two weeks or so. We've just completed our Watches and Wonders period of presenting mostly digitally, but also a bit physically in Shanghai with the uh, physical Watches and Wonders Fair. And of course, due to the current travel restrictions, we did it all here via hologram live streaming from Switzerland. And of course, we are now used to really uh, take to digital media, to live streaming, to podcasting, to Clubhouse and to all the new media to really uh, bring our novelties and our new products across. And I think that's changed really quite a bit the way that that taste making uh, it, it happens uh, really uh, compared to how it used to be. I mean, we've been much, much more isolated the last year. And I think that's really accelerated the way that digital media in, in all their shape and form have become such a central element in tastemaking. And I'm really excited today to be joined by somebody who's really at the heart of all of this because David Fisher from High Snobiety is really somebody who started in the blogosphere and developed over time into one of the main tastemaking platforms for popular culture, sneaker, art, cars, fashion, everything that goes with it. And he's really somebody who's built yeah, today almost in a 360-degree international empire from what used to be a humble block back in 2005. Um, David, it's fantastic to have you with us. How are you? Hi, Chris. Really great to be here. I'm, I'm really well. And uh, I, of course, appreciate the kind introduction. Yeah, no, of course. It's, it's true. I mean, if I understand correctly, you started back in 2005, I think, with a blog, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, it's it's really crazy to think about it today because it's kind of a long time ago. Um, and uh, I, I suppose I'm lucky that it didn't feel that long. I was studying in Zurich at the time and um, had a bit of extra time on my hands and started reading blogs uh, that came mostly from the US at the time. And I was inspired by the medium, actually, more so than, let's say, having a desperate need to share my thoughts. But I, I was actually very, very excited by the medium, uh, the technology behind blogs. And um, so set one up at the time and, uh, and started, started blogging. And obviously, I wrote about the things that I care deeply about and uh, sneakers, uh, sneaker culture at large, uh, Japanese fashion and streetwear were, you know, a few of my passions. And, um, and that's how the journey began. Mm. No, and it's been an a, amazing journey indeed. So maybe for our listeners, tell us a little bit what's High Snobiety all about and, and what's the journey been like? 
So yeah, I mean, uh, as I mentioned, so I mean, I started in two thousand five, and um, and you know, it really quickly became a small publishing business that uh, that was monetizing through digital advertising. So quite quite classic in a sense back then, and uh, you know, you know, we were taking care mostly uh, of the content creation aspect, and then we worked with different agencies to monetize um, uh, the the blog through through advertising, and then. Um, you know, it was it was an interesting time. Uh, you know, if you think about it now, because um, looking back, I, I started a few months before YouTube was found. You know, which is kind of weird to think about now. Probably uh, was, ten years before the iPhone was launched, or something like that. <laughs> or at least the not, iPad. Not that long, but uh, I'm not that old. Okay, <laughs> but well, uh, iPhone was one but, from 2006, yeah. 2007. Yeah, exactly. I see, and yeah, then iPad. Still... I think what 2013 or 2011. I mean, somewhere around there. It's crazy. So it was. Yeah, so it was pre-iPhone, pre-YouTube, pre-Instagram, pre-Facebook, uh, pre-Twitter. You know, so um, so you so blocked on really, facts, basically, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, real, real news. Um, and um, and so it was it was just a completely different environment. Getting people to your site, you know, um, promoting, marketing your brand was a completely different ballgame at the time. And uh, at the same time, there was, of course, plenty of opportunity because, you know, I entered all of these platforms with High Snowbody like on day three, you know, so we had a Facebook page and then really early on an Instagram page. And, and so we, you know, we were able to build very authentic communities around our brand at a time where there was no paid advertising on any of these platforms. And, um, you know, so, so that was the one thing that happened. And then the other thing that, of course, happened was we, we got quite lucky um, you know, with the topics that that we picked, or or I guess that I was passionate about, because believe it or not, nobody cared about sneakers in two thousand five, mm. and nobody cared about man's fashion in two thousand five, and nobody cared about streetwear in two thousand five. And uh, in all three cases, you know, which were really the building blocks or pillar content pillars of High Snobody from from the very early days, all three really exploded in the following years. You know, sneakers went from you know being uh, a niche uh, footwear item or, or an item that was used for the most part only for sports to really anybody. You know, from kids to grandparents was suddenly wearing sneakers, and you know five years later, streetwear you know went uh, both luxury and to the main street, um, uh, to the high street uh, at, uh, in a few years' time. And menswear really took over the world as well. Men caring about fashion. Uh, brands caring about having a menswear line and, of course, also the significance of the menswear line uh, within the portfolio of brands significantly grew over the years. And I think the combination of, you know, the, the topics that we care deeply about and, you know, this, you know, massive growth uh, in social media really gave us, of course, also a significant boost. And, uh, and I think that that's more or less what happened in the first five, six, seven years of Heisenbody. And then, um, on, on the business side, we eventually made a move into branded content in the early 2010s. Um, you know, we built a creative team, uh, production team. You know, so, uh, so the relationship with brands, you know, got, got a whole lot deeper and was a bit less transactional. And, and we've really been on that path now for, for almost 10 years. You know, so we built that out into, you know, uh, Helping, have, helping brands with talent, helping brands with experiential, helping brands, uh, you know, to really understand this audience inside out. Mm -hmm. And then I think the last step on that uh, business journey for us was really the addition of insights and data. 
uh, on one hand, and then also strategy, which allowed us to connect the insights and the data with the creative that we were uh, building for brands. And that really changed completely the relationship we started having with brands. It became a whole lot more consultative and uh, it became a whole lot more strategic. And as a result, the, the working relationship with brands became a lot more long-term, which uh, is, of course, really exciting for us because we, we suddenly started working a lot more in depth and, you know, and, and we could really start advising on talent, on product curation, on, uh, of course, content, you know, which, uh, which always kind of stands at the heart of everything that we do. And, um, and that, that's really been a really exciting journey for me personally also because everything, you know, High Snobite exists because of my love for, for great product. And, you know, being able to influence what that product may look like today, what the collaboration, who the, who the collaborator may be, um, and how that product is then marketed in a relevant way um, is, of course, I mean, a, a very, very satisfying, um, you know, journey. And, um, and so, yeah, so that, that's, you know, how, how that has really changed over the years and then last but not least you know we're, we're also on an exciting journey as a brand ourselves um you know because we don't really regard ourselves purely as a as a publisher or an agency but above all really as our own brand and um and so we've uh, made a move into e-commerce uh, a couple of years ago and we've really started building um our own product building and making and designing our own product and uh, that's, of course, been really exciting, too, because, again, I mean, if, if you love product, then the ultimate, you know, expression is, of course, you know, being in the driver's seat and making your own. Yeah. Not just and, writing about um, it, but actually making it. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I mean, you notice, I mean, there's nothing like holding a new watch in your hand that you've been working on for months and years. Uh, and and uh, it's the same excitement for us, you know, when we make a T-shirt, a cap, a pair of sneakers with uh, with a collaboration partner or anything else. And uh, and more than anything, I'm thankful that we're allowed to do that. So, the question really is: When are you opening your first hotel? Yeah, <laughs> it's uh, it's uh, f funny that you ask. We, we we have no plans for hotels yet. Uh, we have to change that. Um, I want to yeah, uh, do yeah. a hotel here at IWC. I've always been dreaming about this sort of extreme sort of treetop um, lodge type thing just opposite our manufacturing center. And I think we should do that. That would be awesome. Yeah, yeah. brilliant. We could. No, and, and you know, we speak so much these days about, you know, brands being universes more than anything. And, uh, and you know, as, as uh, crazy as it may sound today, I mean, a hotel is such a great, you know, complimentary piece of the experience there. And um, so, yeah. If I mean, you can control the you know, service never, experience, yes. <laughs> Yeah, if you I mean, outsource never, that to X, Y, Z, sometimes not. <laughs> that's true. That's true. That I mean, that's the tricky part, I guess, right? I mean, what what then ultimately really makes sense, and what uh, and what uh, less so. But um, but I think it's it's exciting that um, you know, as a brand, but also you know, for ourselves uh, as a as a publisher and and uh, agency partner, that you don't have to think in 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 these buckets anymore. You know, that you can really. You can allow yourself to be elastic and move into different territories and um, and do all kinds of exciting things mm. these days. So I've got to ask you before we get onto your first watch experience, but also, and I'm going to tell you mine afterwards, but I want to know what is your first sneaker experience that you can actually remember where you think it changed from sort of, I don't know, mom or dad buying you a pair of shoes to you actively <laughs> making a style choice when it comes to your footwear? 
It's a good question. And I'm, I'm not sure I have, I, have, I have this incredible story I can tell you there, but I, I certainly do remember quite firmly when, um, you know, when kids around me in school started, you know, it w- what I loved about it, uh, and that's what I love about our market in general, I love the specificity around it, you know, and, so, and I had a few kids around me that, you know, were kind of known to care about fashion and, and, uh, and style uh, a bit more so than, let's say, the average kid. And they suddenly all started wearing a rolled up pair of Levi's jeans mm-hmm. and an Air Force One high top sneaker. And, you know, and, and I will never forget that moment because, the, I mean, that was for me the first time where I really came home and I was like, hey, mom, we have to go to Foot Locker and I need to pick up a pair of this exact type of sneaker because, that, because I want to wear it in this specific way. Where and did I you think, have a Foot Locker back in those days? I mean, I had one in Frankfurt, but I, was, I had to travel to that, basically. The, sa- same thing, exactly. So I was, at that time, I was living outside of Frankfurt, actually. Oh, so we went to the same Foot Locker, Hauptwache, huh? Exactly. That yeah, that's, exactly so we that's exactly the Foot Locker <laughs> I went to, and, uh, and where I picked up my, my first pair of Air Force Ones. Uh, and I will never forget them. It was a, um, it was a navy blue pair, mid-top Air Force One, yeah. and the ankle strap had an American flag on it. And it was, there you go. Yeah, it was a very special sneaker for me. And, and, I, and I remember, funnily, a few moments like that, funnily, all in that Foot Locker. Yeah. You know, like the Air Max 97, yeah. that silver uh, Nike shoe uh, was a huge deal because that was the first time where I really, really remember spending, I mean, for that age, uh, especially a considerable amount yeah. of money on a sneaker. That was a lot of money. Definitely. And so, yeah. So I think that was, yeah, that, that's my first <laughs> sneaker experience. That's amazing. That's, that's so cool because, my, you know, in the end, my mom actually refused to go into that footlocker. So I would go in there because she found it way too stressful. You know, this is the time before social distancing and... This store was, even back then, was very much packed. And she yeah. would send me in there. She would let me do my thing. And then ultimately, if I could twist her arm to buy me a pair, she would come in and pay for them. But she would yeah. not go into this store. I was but, fascinated by that, by that, by the store, by the product. But to be honest, also because of the skateboarders in yeah. front of it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, it was, it was yeah, such true. a cool place, you know, true. because you had all these skaters there, yeah. you know, all these cool looking kids. And so I would, you know was almost hypnotized, yeah. you know, when, when I would go there. Like and especially, you know, memories. yeah, totally. And especially being a kid that wouldn't, that didn't live in town. You know, I was like yeah. living half an hour outside of town. You know, so it was an even bigger deal, I suppose. Definitely. Yeah. And then Tile Gallery opened, which was the first like weird circulation mall where you had to take escalators yeah. all the way to the top and then wind your way back down past exactly. hundreds of stores you didn't want to go to just to get to the one shop you were actually listening, look, looking for. Oh, yeah. Actually, Tile Gallery, I can tell you also <laughs> I mean, it is amazing that, that you know all of this, but or that you experience the same thing. Because in Tile Gallery, there were two shops that mattered for me. One, which was uh, selling the starter uh, jackets. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, and, and, and the team caps from the Amer- yeah. you know, American ice hockey and NFL teams. And then there was the other one, which was this kind of weird stoner shop. Um, uh, you know, so they had all these like, marijuana posters and well, i didn't and, go to uh, that one <laughs> patches so i went i went there no i mean this was like uh mid late 90s yeah. and so um so obviously there was no no legal marijuana or anything but it was like it was you know just basically just artwork inspired by that world yeah 
you know, and, and I bought patches for my, for my Eastpac backpack there. <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, yeah. So, yes, definitely. Yeah. Starter and Eastpac, those were the brands. Yeah. And see that for me, that was, I think it was probably a touch earlier than that. I must have been around 11, just starting secondary school. And this was the moment when LA gear became a thing. I don't know if you remember LA gear. <laughs> I, I do remember, but funnily, that was never a thing for, uh, yeah. for me. And this be, and I'm this not was, sure if I was too old or too young. This yeah. was huge in my school. And this was literally, I think I would have worn like the type of sort of orthopedic Puma trainers before, sort of ankle boots for stability, that kind of thing. And then LA gear came along and changed everything because suddenly you had this like sort of amazing world of LA lifestyle that came with this kind of product. And they yeah. had these, they had this unique sort of, um, a folded over leather strip lamella type pattern on the side of them that re re revealed the the reverse um, leather color, well, plastic color on, on the side of the trainer. Pretty much like uh, Gucci did under Tom Ford in fine tailoring many, many years later. But that was the signature for LA gear. And I think I, I discussed with my mom and dad for at least four months until uh, they would buy me this black and white pair of high top LA gear basketball sneakers. Amazing. And then I had this thing. I remember we bought them. I, I got them home in the box. I like, I was really, really scared something's going to happen to them. And that night I actually woke up completely sweaty from having this nightmare that I was sliding on mud in these trainers that completely destroyed them. And this was like my biggest fear of my 11 year old self. So that, that was my first uh, sneaker story. Amazing. I actually met the founder of LA Gear uh, not long ago, uh, two, three years ago, yeah. and he ended up founding Skechers. All right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. So and 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 there's a I mean I don't think we have time for it today but there's there's a really good story around LA Gear also okay. you know how how that wow. happened and how it became a thing and how it stopped being a thing. So yeah, that's maybe the thing also back then because of the absence of the internet and social media you couldn't find out this stuff you know unless you knew or had the catalog or whatever which we never did. Yeah. You know, you just didn't know all these amazing stories. And when you think about the wealth of information that's actually available today around this whole concept of streetwear and the culture and the influences and all the rest of it, none of this was really accessible. For me, this was just what somebody else wore. And it was sort of the merchandise that I could see in the sports shop, which was sneakers, laces, and, and maybe a t-shirt. And that was pretty much it. Yeah, yeah, totally. Well, and, and, and that's why, uh, you know, today... You've got, you know, 16 year old kids that, you know, can tell you everything about, uh, you know, Ralph Simmons garment from yeah. 2002, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, and you're just amazed how, how they can be so much in the know, but, you know, this, this idea of, you know, uh, being, and, and finally, I, I really also do connect that, uh, so I, I just had a great conversation here internally with our graphic design team and because you know we're designing the next fall winter collection and I, I tried to explain to them you know how i would describe the high nobody brand and you know so much of it has to do with this idea of deeply caring about something you know and you can be you know you can be a coffee nerd or you can be a watch nerd or you can be a fashion nerd you know and and you know and being being a snob for me uh, you know, that's, you know, because, it, you know, it can also have a bit of a negative connotation, but being a snob for me always has to do with, you know, just really deeply caring or caring significantly more about something than, mm. than others. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and also in the watch space, I, I would always say, you know, I love as much, you know, the, the G-Shock and the Swatch as I do the IWC, yeah. you know, like each for their own right. Yeah. And, and I think, 
having that understanding about a space, like that's what makes you that that's you know what what makes you a nerd or 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 a high snob, so to speak. You know, like that's how I would always describe it. And you know, when I try to explain to our editors, you know, how to address this audience, what to expect from them, you know, what do you have to explain to a high snobiter reader, and what should you never explain? Mm. You know, what what should you expect? Um, you know, uh, of them to know already. Yeah. And um, and I think that's fascinating nowadays, of course. It is, yeah. And I think that's also where the the world of watchmaking and and that specific genre and and especially sneakers and streetwear really intersect is this idea of um, the, the, the depth of immersion that you can have in these worlds. And I think that's something that really our clients are looking for probably in your world as, as much in our world, because when it comes to sneakers, it's, it's basically the same principle, you know, yeah, you, you can't buy everything in store, but you can go into a store, you can go online and you can select something purely on the style you like. And, you know, without any background story on collabs and history and, who all these people wear, et cetera, et cetera. But um, you can purely do this on, I like this shoe, I'll wear it. And I think that's the same for watches. You know, you have clients who simply like the brand, they like the design, and that's what they're going to go for. But then if you get deeper into it, or as you describe it, you become a, a sort of snob, somebody who cares about their stylistic choices a lot and makes them very consciously, then you can immerse yourself almost indefinitely into the subject matter. You know, there's so much history, so much creation technical depth to be explored absolutely and i really think that is something that that appeals to um people in that space quite a lot nowadays because you have this range absolutely and it's uh, you know it's, it's very much also the foundation of you know how we how we coined the term new luxury mm -hmm. right i mean we, we we speak so much about you know you know how in old luxury obviously craftsmanship and price and heritage are kind of the, the main pillars and all these things still matter very much, but knowledge and access are, you know, really key drivers for what makes something luxurious to a, a young audience nowadays. And, you know, you know, being immersed in, in the brand's story and, you know, knowing, you know, knowing everything about, you know, a product of that brand really adds significant value. Yeah. And, um, and the watch space, of course, lends itself incredibly to that. Yeah. Because there's just so much knowledge, uh, you know, that that comes with it, and uh, and so um, so yeah, so I, I totally agree. It's, it's that amazing sometimes. I, yeah, literally yesterday, I had the first conversation ever with a very young client of ours from New York City, and in the first fifteen minutes of the conversation, I realized this gentleman knew absolutely everything about the brand. It was absolute. He started to talk to me about, you know, the collaboration history between us and Mark Ong of Sabotage in Singapore and stuff like that. I was like, oh my god. You know, I could probably ask 50% of my colleagues internally. They've <laughs> no, never even heard of it. I'm not, I'm not, no, I don't want to insult anybody. But, you know, it's like the level of, I mean, he knew like, you know, all my quotes from interviews from years ago. And I was like, my goodness me. Wow. You know, and, and there, yeah. there are people, they, they, are, they have an incredible level of research. And even, and that is also the thing, you know, we, we traditionally in our industry maybe um, associated that with the world of longstanding collectors. But yeah, nowadays you meet 20-year-olds who maybe have never bought a product from you, but they know absolutely everything. And this is also, you know, in, in no small part, uh, thanks to people like you who are creating these platforms that, yes, are making tastes and creating trends, but they're also hugely educational, but in a very sort of democratic way. Absolutely. absolutely. And, and that's, you know, I think that's the fine line that I tried to describe before. How can you be educational while still taking your counterpart, your your community on the other side, very serious? Mm, yeah. And you know, 
And I think that's kind of that fine line that we always uh, try to strike. And a few days ago, I was in Hamburg with with a colleague of mine, and um, you know, he's in his uh, late thirties. We're talking about watches, and then it was funny. He said, and it was such a true thing. I thought he said. Yeah, you know, David, it's a bit like you're um, graduating from sneakers and you're you're moving into watches. You know, it's almost like a generational thing that you know you you wear maybe a sneaker collector or a streetwear fan, so you understand the mechanics. You know, you have that level of interest in certain things, mm. but then you reach a certain age where maybe you know the value and and knowledge and access around watches becomes more appealing to you than than sneakers do, in a sense. And so I really think it's, you know, it's something that, uh, you know, that is very interconnected just because the, you know, the idea of caring this much about something is, is the same yeah. in a sense. Yeah. No. no, absolutely. And I think what, what I think is so valuable is that you have uh, really the, the, the tr trans translator element of uh, platforms like yours that also make that a little bit less daunting because I do realize that an industry like ours that has a lot of sort of technical expertise and heritage and all of this, it, it, it can be a bit scary, you know, and then sometimes you of feel in, if you go to, you know, traditional retail, you're almost expected to, to have sort of the, you know, it's just like me going to, to a whiskey or a wine store and then being sort of, you know, gloriously exposed for my non-knowledge uh, of, of vintages and all the rest of it. And it's, it, it can be a bit scary at times. And I think what, what you do is you're translating that into a world that people can relate to and into sort of uh, something a, a little bit more accessible that uh, people can then start venture into something in, in, in a light version before they, <laughs> before they feel they need to have a PhD in mechanical engineering. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that, that's exactly it. You know, and, and I think 10 years ago, that's how luxury fashion felt like. Mm. You know, it was... You know, you just felt out of place in a sense, mm. and uh, and I think they've they've uh, come a really long way there. And I think, I mean, watches and and knowing about watch, I think is extremely present in our space at this stage. But I think watch retail is you know is still very much stuck in the old days, much like you described. You know, it's very it's a big barrier I think that a young person has to overcome to walk into, you know, a more traditional watch retailer sit down, ask for a watch to be taken out of the glass box. You know, it's, it's a, it, it, I think yeah. it's, um, you know. I think the, the, the story that Aurel uh, Bax uh, shared in, in the last episode of, of Partners in Time with us, when he got his first IWC at Chronometrie Bayer in Zurich from his parents, um, he, they were just about to go to the store and his dad probably stopped him in his tracks and said, you know, Aurel, what are you wearing? You know, put on a decent shirt. We're going to Bayer for heaven's sake. That's amazing. <laughs> you know? And that sort of describes the, the, the cultural shift yeah. a little bit over the last couple of years. And I have to honestly say, back in 2005, I probably wouldn't have been able to, to uh, name a lot of different generations of Air Jordans. So for you, as well it must have been like a you, there must have been a moment where you thought you know what's going on here this is what, what i used to blog about you know i didn't know anything about japanese denim back in the day and, and suddenly this has become sort of mainstream enough to really get critical mass you know it's not no longer really a niche pursuit where, 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 where was this moment when you really sort of felt oh i'm onto something here this is this is becoming quite big yeah it's funny i mean so First, maybe I'll tell you one story, which kind of showed you how far away I was from everybody around me at that time. So I remember in 2000, I would say seven, seven, eight, a, a close friend of mine in Zurich got married. And uh, I was at the like pre-wedding dinner. And, um, and you have to imagine there were about 20 people at that pre-wedding dinner. And 18 of them worked in banks. 
and then there was my wife and I. <laughs> and uh, and so and and then obviously the big question was like, okay, what does that guy do? And I had the difficult task of explaining to these people what I was doing. And so I sort of tried to explain them what Heisnabidi was about through the example of Nike, you know, mm. because Nike was of course like the epitome of you know sneaker culture, you know, yeah. you know, and so. And I'm talking about Nike and limited edition sneakers and, you know, how people stand in line to get these sneakers and, you know, how, how it's this global phenomenon. And then eventually somebody in the room goes like, I mean, I, I kind of get it, but like, why are you talking about Nike the entire time? Puma is the coolest sneaker brand on mm. the planet. You know, and, and it, was, it was just such a telling story at the time how far you know, removed the general public was from, and people, I mean, those were all people my age, right? Yeah. Um, how, how far removed that they were from, from my space. And, um, and yeah, and, and that has, has of course dramatically changed. I think the, what's funny there is that it's such a gradual change every single year that you sometimes, of course, don't even realize how much has actually changed until you suddenly turn around and you've got, you know, kids, around you on Kudam wearing off-white shirts mm. and Yeezys. You know, and that's when you realize, ah, okay. Something's happening. Yeah, something's <laughs> happening. Or, you know, when, uh, you know, you know, friends of my parents, you know, or, or come around, they're like, yeah, my son bugged me again to buy him, blah, blah, blah. As long you as know, the, or, you know, the kids or, don't come around and say, my dad's been bugging me about the latest. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Totally. <laughs> or... By the way, we also David, get I, have my, I have my own take on the uh, the Zurich dinner party because I made this somewhat tragic mistake in the early years of IWC at these kind of dinner parties that when I was surrounded by bankers, I did actually uh, let on that I worked for IWC, which at this point you're right. then talking about nothing else for the entire evening. And my wife in particular, my girlfriend at the time, got extremely sick of that very, very quickly. And she went like, you're so silly. Just tell them you work in a bank and you've got peace and quiet for the rest of the evening. That's and amazing. I actually, and I actually switched this around because once you say I'm a banker, all they ask you is, is a Credit Suisse or UBS? And after that, the conversation is over. And, and literally, Switches you can Switches back to something else. <laughs> yeah, they just move on. So perfect. That's that was amazing. my recipe. So maybe those uh, 19 bankers at that pre-wedding dinner, they probably worked somewhere else. They just didn't want to admit it. <laughs> that, yeah, that, that would have been really funny, actually. Yeah. <laughs> but let's talk about your first watch moment, David. I mean, I, I remember there, 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 there was something going on about a Da Vinci, but, but tell us more. Yeah, so... Um, it's, it's really funny, actually. So, I mean, so suddenly a good friend of my dad was working for IWC. And, uh, and so with that, my dad, of course, got a lot more into the brand as well. And, uh, and so one day, my dad basically ended up ordering himself his first, like, you know, like he had a sports watch, but now he wanted like something a bit more formal, so to speak, and, uh, and ended up uh, buying uh, the IWC Da Vinci. And, you know, also there, I really remember when, when he received it and it came in this like white leather box and, and it had this like extra piece for the years, for the mm. date, yes. because I think it was centuries later. Exactly. Ladder. The yeah, Great. Because that, that, I, I didn't know that word, but that was, of course, that was, you know, that certainly fascinated me, you know, that, uh, that, you know, this amazing piece of mechanical uh, watchmaking, you know, was created and, and was supposed to run accurately for the next, I don't know, 300 years or so. 499, um, yeah. And then, funnily, I 
almost forgot about that. But um, I received as an engagement gift from my parents-in-law, I received a uh, uh, Portuguese. Oh, wow. So, um, so yeah, there, there we go. There's another IWC moment. Um, so I, I received the, the beautiful seven-day reserve in, uh, in rose gold. For your engagement, um, lucky I'm for my lucky engagement. Man. Yeah, I got that. To be honest, that's exactly I what I was got a thinking. Box of Maltesers. How freaking lucky am I? Uh, <laughs> that's exactly what I was thinking at the time. But it was there was an engagement dinner, and then my mother-in-law handed me over the box, and I was like, "All right." The, I, I, you know, I, I thought I was lucky because I'm getting getting to marry this woman, but like this is even better, you know. Um, <laughs> Just gonna say that was very decent. Yeah, right. yeah, exactly. Wow. <laughs> Well, that's definitely something we, no we noticed over the last couple of years is that I think when I look at my own uh, taste journey as well, and I, I came from a very similar, you know, I had, I had swatches, I even had a swatch irony sort of mechanical, which I thought was was excellent. In those days, my, my first watch memory clearly was uh, uh, spending what felt like a day at uh, Tigeli and If Jewelers at Bern in Switzerland, while my dad bought his uh, stainless steel Nautilus. And this was also cool. long, long, long before that became a thing, really. And that was really for people in the know, you know, way, way yeah. uh, before that, that really became a major sports watch, watch trend. And then from there, I think my... It was definitely G-Shock. It was uh, Citizen Promaster. I loved the kind of Thule diving Me too. look of the Me Promaster. Me too. I, I was always obsessed with Citizen dive watches. I will never forget the, the 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 black bracelet, that kind of eggshell dial. Yeah. yeah. The you know the orange. Um, how do you? Sorry, I'm missing the word. Um, Tiger hands. Yeah. The orange hand. Yeah. I always loved those. Yeah, yeah. to this day. No, definitely, yeah. they had they had some weird dive depth calculation thingy on the strap, which I could never work out. But it looked immensely technical and cool. And from there, when I when I came across um, IWC, I really first clicked with the uh, 2004 generation of the Aquatana. That really was for me because it is kind of this very sort of action oriented adventure. What I remember those too. Yeah, that absolutely. Was, that was was, totally wasn't it cool. like a black yellow? Yeah, yeah, so they existed in titanium, black and yellow. And then um, in the stainless steel versions, they were either blue dial with orange or black dial with white uh, quarter circle on the uh, turning bezel. But this was definitely a watch that appealed to me. And then when I started sort of out yeah. of business here and everything was very formal and stuff, I, I switched over to Portugueses and Portofinos as well. And then really over time, the last 10 years, you could really see my uh, taste uh, sort of uh, just sort of slowly, slowly going to pilot's watches. And I think I feel that really... The, the the entire sort of dress sense, uh, cars, uh, you know, watches, everything sort of changed, almost like synchronized. And and I don't know if you if you if you felt the same, but I really think this all goes hand in hand. When I then see that, you know, especially now in Chinese tastes, even you see the younger generation, Tier One City, Shanghai, Beijing, and Chengdu, and so on. They're, they're really migrating towards the, the the pilot's model and kind of these these sportier expressions, which can be different from the generation before. And, and is it is it a mix of sporty, but also a bit that kind of vintage aspect to it, or not? I mean, yeah, there is. You know, definitely, but, I think that we have two expressions in within sports. You have the 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 small, as you described, you have the smaller diameter, very pure dial sports vintage that has a has a major trend over the last. Three, four years in particular, I would say. And then there's the kind of the, the sort of quite modern tool watch thing, which is going on as well, which we see reflected in the Aquatimer quite a bit. So yeah. that, that, that is definitely also the, something that, that people are increasingly migrating uh, towards. But I think that the I'm, entire style is just casualizing uh, massively. Totally. I mean, what I'm, I have to admit, what I'm fascinated with these days on the, on the watch side is on, on one hand, I, I like it very, very simple. Mm. You know, you almost like don't want anybody to take notice. And then what, what I have to say, I'm also fascinated with this 
really technology and real innovation. Because yeah. I feel like for such a long time that hasn't played a role. And I'm, I'm just so excited by, you know, what, what's happening in the watch world now on, the, on that front yeah. and how that finally matters and seems to, you know, seems to, um, you know, kind of break through a little bit. You know, you, had, you always had a little bit with the Richard Mills of the world and, and a few other places here and there, but, but, I'm, you, know, but you never really saw it broadly worn yeah. in a sense. Yeah, that's you know? true. But, but that's why, you know, I think what you guys just announced that, um, Big pilot shock absorber, was shock absorber. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, that was for me like the absolute highlight. And yeah. that you know, in the announcement, I was like, okay, this this is super cool. You know, and, yeah, and, this is um, exactly as you described. Because on the one hand, and you see that in the big pilot forty three that has that clean dial with no date, no power reserve. Because especially, I love this discussion because if you ask one hundred people in the world whether they prefer watches with a pure dial or watches with a date, you get fifty fifty or thereabouts. It's probably like a, a, a Brexit uh, type of thing, you know, fifty one forty nine percent. That sort of split of people saying you absolutely cannot buy a watch without a date, and you can absolutely not buy a watch that has a date. So it's it's I a mean, bit like that. But you'll see now we have these kind of very very essential. Uh, tool watches in the lineup that are super pure and then on the other hand you have a shock absorber where yes it's a different level of innovation but it's also it's, it's design wise it's much more forward looking it's not um, a vintage inspired design at all it's yeah. thoroughly modern and technical yeah yeah i love that progressive look now yeah you have both of those trends in the market very strongly at the moment definitely yeah which is so cool i think it was also necessary you know i mean how long could you just ride this kind of vintage wave and and yeah. I think, um, and I think, yeah, it's great that that brands and you guys included are kind of sh making a shift there as well, and also offering something in that space. And you know, of course, also myself, you know, I'm, I'm always the kind of guy that, you know, I, I cannot just wear what everybody else is wearing, mm -hmm. right? That would be boring. And so, so I think that's also where you're, of course, uh, you know, really feeding into that side of my personality in a yeah. sense. You know, where I'm like, okay, great, that, you know. I'm not going to be standing in the room with four other guys, you know, wearing, wearing that watch, you know, so it's all, you know, a bit of weirdness, a bit of, you know, kind of needs to be there as well. I that's, think. yeah. And that's the thing a little bit, you know, what I, what I always wonder with the, the vintage thing, and it's a bit of a philosophical, philosophical kind of uh, observation, but when you project yourself sort of 50 years forward and you look at that time period that really started with a lot of, to my mind, it really started with these sort of automotive, um, retro designs of the, what was it, late 1990s, I suppose, when sort of the Fiat Cinquecento came back and all these American yeah. Ford Thunderbird and Chrysler PT Cruiser and all of this stuff. The Mini, know, The right? Mini, exactly. The Mini and all of this stuff that really sort of went back in terms of the design language to the 50s and beyond. And then also in, in, in the sneaker world, you look at all of the retro editions that are, are being launched at the moment. And 50 years down the line, let's assume, we move on from that at some point, it's going to be difficult to, to assess, you know, what is this? It's a bit like in architecture when you have sort of, yeah. you know, neoclassic, neo-Roman, yeah. oh, neo-neo-regency neo style yeah. forward, backward, and you can't identify what it is. For such a long time, you know, I'm a huge architecture fan, and I'm like, how is it possible that architecture has become so boring, yeah. right? When you look back, you know, 30, 40, 50 years, you know, all the exciting things that have happened around the world, and now, you know, everything just looks the same. And you're, you're just kind of wishing that things will, will change a bit uh, again in that respect. So, well, I have a theory about that. And that's, you know, maybe that's also a little bit linked to what we're seeing in the, in the streetwear and the watch space. And, and my theory is always that I think at the height of modernism, there was a really, really clear shared vision of the future. You know, in the late 1950s, early 1960s, once 
really uh, that generation was over the kind of post-war low, that there was really this idea that an increase in productivity would create, you know, added value. It would create more jobs. It would create higher paid jobs. It would create free time. You know, you had the, the jumbo jet was invented. People started mass traveling all over the shop because they didn't have to work seven days a week and so on. And suddenly this idea of making everything faster, more mobile, go to space, all the rest of it, it seemed like progress was all around positive. Everyone's got to get wealthier and life's just going to get better every single day. And I think that drove... Mm -hmm very, very clear design trends in architecture right. and automotive design that was inspired by space in fashion and all the rest of it. This is outbreak in the 60s of, of uh, joy of life and all the rest of it. And I think that really we have entered a phase post-postmodernism, uh, post as it were, where, you know, a lot of the, uh, and I'm going to touch then on our, on our final uh, topic for this podcast, which is this, this whole question of sustainability, um, we came to to a moment where both this promise of modernism that increased productivity and automation would bring more wealth to more people really collapsed. And that was really in the 1990, well, late 1980s, early 90s, that disparity between, you know, some people being, winning big and a lot of people not winning so much anymore. And that promise of modernism really fell apart. And then with this question of what machine evolution and AI and robotics are going to mean in terms of our position and our place in the world and our employment and our, our uh, livelihoods. And at the same time, the sustainability question of, of the planet's resources and future hanging overheads. I think we stopped having this single-minded, clear vision of a better future. And I think that has a lot to do with why we see so many different trends, why we see so much retro and why there isn't such a clear development in architectural style or in in fashion and in, in, in all the rest Good of theory. it in terms of, um, you know, moving forward. Um, and I think, I hope that we're going to get um, past this point and, and actually find a, a vision that people can, can, can share sure. again. But let's talk a yeah. little bit about this, this question of um, um, hype and, and unsustainability. I mean, I think you, you touched on it uh, quite a number of times. The fact that ultimately, of course, uh, spreading a knowledge and spreading fascination for a topic such as sneakers and watches also ultimately leads to more consumption, it leads to more products being produced, it needs to leads to more products being shipped around the planet, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, with with everything that we link to sort of fast fashion and sneakers, et cetera, that there are some questions there, really, how uh, you know sustainable that is. Where do you see the the industry going there? how How can we make sure that what everybody enjoys in terms of um, wearing and having these objects uh, also is is sort of in 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 sync with, uh, creating a more responsible future for our planet. Yeah, I mean, it's. Um, I mean, as you're pointing out, right? It's it's of course a difficult relationship in a sense right? because I mean, you know, of course we we write about all the great and cool new things that come out on a on a consistent basis, and yet at the same time we're in touch with an audience that cares deeply and more so every single day about sustainability and about the health of the planet and and the impact that you know their behavior has on the planet. And so, you know, it's, it's really also uh, making in a big way, you know, it's, it's entering our space since, uh, since quite a few years. You know, this week we launched the Heist and Mighty Better Earth Manual, you know, as a kind of guide for style and enthusiasts, you know, in the current ecological crisis. And, you know, to kind of just give background on what is happening, what can we do, you know, and then also practical questions. You know, how sustainable is really the sneaker that you're wearing how can you support garment workers around the world? What actually happens to donated clothing? What are the best 
you know, resale fashion sites that uh, that you should be taking a look at. What what about all this terminology that you hear every day? You know, from organic cotton, cruelty free, resale. Like, what does this all mean? You know, so a very we t- we took a very practical approach there and and kind of wanted to be a resource uh, for our audience. And mm. yeah, and I think you know every day that goes by, this this topic becomes you know more important. And uh, you know. It, it's a it's a difficult one, of course, because it's not something that anybody, that any brand, any retailer can just change overnight. You know, it's a it's a process that everybody has to uh, you know be a part of, where, where everybody needs to support change and uh, a change in behavior. Of course, on the consumer side, triggers change on the brand side. I think the exciting part is that we've arrived at a point. I think where everybody has realized that. I think we're probably still in, in kind of this in-between generation, but the next one will just not accept it anymore. Yeah. And, you know, as a brand, you have, you have absolutely no chance with that generation unless you have a very clear sustainability strategy and a clear strategy, you know, to, to fix your footprint on, uh, on our planet. Mm. And that will, that will enforce change, you know, uh, I think in a, in a very rigorous way over the next uh, years. And, um, and I think, you know, as always, it needs to get to a point where it's the new normal, you know, where, it, you know, it's nothing, it's, it's nothing special anymore. It's not something that you can market. It's just a given in a yeah. sense. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and yeah. I think that, that's, what we're, that's what we have to all work towards. And, um, you know, we, it's, we still have a long way to go on one hand, but talking about it, um, you know, Thinking about it as part of everything that you do feels increasingly normal, I would yeah. say. No, and I think it's, it's really important that, you know, platforms like yours create awareness because ultimately I think awareness amongst the clientele raises the right question and ultimately then also puts uh, the impetus and the, the uh, really onto the entire industry to, to make those changes. And as you say, it's yeah. a step-by-step journey. I think we in the, in the watch business are, are somewhat um, lucky that we've made products for eternity for a long time, purely mechanical, powered by the energy of your wrists and designed to last forever and, and generally have been working on being low impact for, for, for quite some time. But it is a journey. And ultimately the same when I talk about today uh, recycled and, and vegan straps or I talk about fully recycled rubber straps, it is only when the general demand and the conversation gets to a critical point that the entire industry then magically finds the innovation key and actually, you know, changes things for the better. Absolutely. Yeah. On that note, that's a, a much better vision for the future. Uh, let's hope it'll be a successful one as well. Thank you so much, David. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I'm wishing you, you and the entire Heisner Biotech team all the best. And I'm looking forward to our upcoming collaborations as well uh, i can't wait to reveal Likewise. more about that uh thanks for being with us today uh, all the best uh, over to to your end and stay safe stay healthy send our best to the team and speak to you all very soon thanks chris thank Appreciate you everybody and thank you everybody in the audience for listening and uh, talk to you soon for the next episode of partners in time stay tuned cheers all the best bye for now Thank you for listening to today's episode. This is the Partners in Time podcast. Make sure you subscribe to never miss an episode. If you want to find out more, visit iwc.com. And you can, of course, follow us on Instagram. It's at iwcwatches. My Instagram is at chrisgrangerhair. Make sure you tune in. Speak to you soon.